G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We're almost there, Tim, almost there. Only one more episode to go before the end of the season. Yeah, that's right, mate. Today we conclude our study of the text of Genesis 4, and next week we're going to wrap it all up and help our listeners put together everything we learned so far. And we'll spoil a bit about what to expect when we come back after a study break and get into Genesis 5. But today we're all about the enigmatic end to Genesis 4. Enigmatic? Uh, curious uh, word to us. I don't think there was anything enigmatic about this passage. Uh, we'll see, my good friend. We will see. This is Genesis 4. Verse 26, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This passage on the surface of it is relatively straightforward and simple, but scripture is never simple. Something's going on here, and we're going to find out what. But for now, we start with the third son of Adam, whose name means appointed, or as I've argued, planted. This is important because it's directing your focus toward him and thus toward what proceeds from him. And we see that he is going to establish himself to consummate this planting through his son. So we have something substantial here in the text as opposed to the middle brother Abel who vanished like a breath in the wind or overlooked middle child. So Seth has a son and we are told a great deal about him in Genesis 5 in the genealogy of Adam, but it wouldn't be correct to import all of that back into the text we're reading now. For now, we must be content with the introduction of this new character whose name is Enosh. We talked last time about the specific connotations of the phrase which is translated in English, called his name. Again, you have to hear in Hebrew, and when you do, you'll hear the name of his descendants repeated in the text, which underscores the establishment and the legacy of this name, because Enosh will appear only once in this story, but Shem continues to be heard as a reminder of his perpetuity. And so the story of Shem in the great prequel that is the primeval history continues to unfold with the son of Seth. Yeah, that was a, a really cool insight from last week and something that I'll remember when I am reading the Bible to remind me to check the original languages and see what they have to say because there might be some really uh, cool little nuggets in there like this one. And normally I don't like nuggets, but uh, I do like these nuggets. Bit of chicken salt, good for everything. The word Enosh means man or in particular mortal man. This has prompted many commentators to reflect on him as a new Adam after the turning point in the narrative which was presented in the name of Lemech. We have returned to the first man and a new line of ancestry which culminates at the end of this narrative with a new man. The question for us then is, are we going to see a return to the functionality that was intended for Adam? Will mankind be restored under the authority of this new man? Do we dare hope for an escape from the desperate situation of humanity exemplified in Lemech and his sons? We're going to find out, but the author has chosen an interesting way to conclude this narrative, which throws all of our assertions into question. This story, the Toledot of the heavens and the earth, concludes with a very interesting statement about the times in which our protagonist, Seth, lived. Our translation reads as follows. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. 
Now, that's an interesting phrase, and not just because it has thrown the source-critical scholars into a spin. All of this argument about the J source versus the E source and the P source, it's just wasted breath. It's hot air from people looking for an excuse to write articles and dissertations. And it's already abundantly clear that this is a late document. We already know that. But if you're wasting your time agonising over whether the first hand to touch parchment in Genesis 4 was using Elohim or Yahweh in this text, you're wasting your time and you're missing the point. As I said before, inspiration is a process. So just let it be what it is. The text is the text. And our focus needs to be on what the text is telling us. Some people say that this verse is uh, talking about the origin of prayer or worship or something like that. It seems quite clear from this reading that it's the violence and the depravity of mankind, which we've seen escalating through this entire chapter, that has prompted mankind to cry out to God for help. And yet a closer examination reveals that we may need to be more careful about the wording. This is a classic example of the brilliance of the biblical author because he's telling one story overlaid on top of another. It's the surface reading that most people pick up on, and you've already heard that, but what's going on underneath? We've talked before about the dangers of passivity as exhibited by the line of Cain, and it doesn't reach the full extent of passivity we saw in the total absence of Adam at two critical stages of his family's life. But we should be cautious when we read that Tushem was born Enosh. It is still grammatically correct, unlike the example of the descendants of Irad, which was very important in understanding the chapter as a whole. But it's one of those little markers that should just make you pick up your ears. It's a warning to the listener. Something isn't right. Your Bible might have Enos rather than Enosh. If that's the case, it's probably influenced by the Septuagint and you're getting the Greek transliteration. But the Hebrew will give you the sh sound at the end rather than the hard s sound. And as usual, it's the Hebrew that takes priority because if you don't hear what it says in Hebrew, then you're just not hearing it. Oh, I love it when you say that. Now I'm going to give you some examples of where you should be hearing it. There are more, but I think this will be sufficient. 2 Samuel 12, verse 15 from the ESV. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Isaiah 17, verse 11 Though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. Jeremiah 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 30 verse 15. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. I have done these things to you. I thought you said this word was supposed to mean man, but I don't hear the word man in any of those translations. Very good observation. It's the exact same word that's used to describe man in his mortality, in his weakness, in sickness, and in his wickedness. It doesn't mean man so much as it means the human condition. This is the name of Enosh, and the author of Genesis 4 expects you to hear the voice of the prophet Jeremiah in his words to hear Isaiah, to hear Samuel. How would the prophets describe the descendants of Shem? What would they see when they look back on the situation that brought the nation of Israel and the people who bear God's name into exile? This is nothing more than the total and absolute depravity of man. Just when the audience of this text were getting excited about the son of Seth, having heard mention of the name, they're cut down by the Lord's examination of their hearts. And there's no excuse for smugness on our part 
because this is our story too, and the word of God cuts much deeper than the first audience. Are we not human? Are we not mortal? Are we not desperately in need of salvation? Should we not join with this man in crying out to Yahweh? The wickedness of man is our burden too. Wait a minute, didn't you just say this man is in this singular man? That was intentional. Our English translation tells us that men began to call upon the name of the Lord, and yet the verb is singular. Enosh is on his own. Even though I've just pointed out the wretched state of humanity embodied in his name, he is a new Adam. And in him are all the sins of the world presented. He does represent us, and we find ourselves represented in him. Here we are at the end of this narrative, which I've described many times as being archetypal, which means that we find ourselves represented in it, and there could be no more truthful statement than to say that this pitiable man Enosh represents us all. And this is why, when there are so many other words that could be chosen to talk about the beginning of something, that our author has chosen the word halal, which is a very interesting word indeed. Halal is a homonym, just like the name of Enosh. Two words with identical spelling and sound, which have completely different meanings. Just as Enosh is the name of this man, it's also a word that describes human mortality. Halal is a word that means to begin. It is also a word that means to defile or to pollute or to desecrate. Every time we find it in the primeval history, there are negative connotations attached, even though the word is always used in its first form, meaning to begin. That's why I say if you don't hear it in Hebrew, you're just not hearing it because the author is very intentional about his choice of words. As I said already, there are other words he could have used if he only wanted to convey the idea of beginning. So this halal, this beginning, is negative. We see it here in Genesis 4. We see it again in Genesis 6 verse 1. We see it again in Noah after the flood. And finally, at least as far as the primeval history is concerned, we see it in Nimrod, who I mentioned last week in the Q&A. Oh, yeah. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I think I'll make a few comments about that at the end of the episode so we don't get off track here. Uh, again, I just want to stress that I realize we're talking about two separate words, whether we translate as to begin or to defile. But if you haven't realized what our author is doing by now, I don't know what else to tell you. You're supposed to be hearing that ambiguity. You're supposed to be reflecting on the story and considering how both meanings have a place in the text. That is the artistry and the mastery being displayed here in the biblical text. So if you're asking whether it's supposed to be began or defiled, I'm going to tell you that the answer is yes. The text of scripture is meant to be read aloud and heard by its audience. This is why it does you no good to just sit down and listen to textual criticism on scripture, because the scholars who are focusing on written forms and grammar and word studies are not hearing the text the way that the first audience would have heard it. Nobody had their own copy of scripture in their house. You went to the temple or you went to the synagogue or whatever the case may be, you went and listened to a rabbi or one of the scribes or Pharisees, and you had to listen as they read out the text from a carefully guarded scroll. And that was it. You probably were not going to hear that piece of scripture again for the next 12 months. Scripture is designed to be heard, to be memorable, and to convey as much information as possible in a very succinct fashion. That's why it's so important that we learn to hear it. You can't make these connections and thus make sense of the text without that aspect to your study. When I wrote about this in my book with regard to this passage, I stressed the possible interpretation that suggested the defilement of the name of Yahweh by mankind. And that is legitimately one way that you could look at the text. But what I want to show you here is that by keeping this verse in its context, what the author is giving us is a picture of this man who has become the subject of the verbs that follow. Enosh is alone in calling on the name of God. 
So what is this defilement suggested by the use of halal? It is the fact that this man who is representative of humanity's weakness, frailty, sickness, mortality and depravity dares to lift his voice up to a holy God. We're not in sacred space anymore. This man has no authority to claim any right to an audience with the living God. And yet he cries out on behalf of us like the blood of his innocent brother. This is what the author of First Enoch was picking up on when he wrote at the end of chapter 7, then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. Ooh, interesting. And that is where the text leaves us, wondering how God is going to respond to the cry of one of his children. It's interesting to me that in the Hebrew text, there is very little in the way of any kind of hint that we should expect anything good to come from this. And yet when we read the Greek, we're offered a little light, because in the Greek, there is a suggestion that Enosh is expressing some hope that Yahweh will hear him. We find the use of elpidzo, an expression of hope and expectation. And given that we have nothing in the Hebrew from which to draw this expression, it seems to me that this is possibly a development of late Jewish theology. I've already talked about the apocalyptic touches that you can find dotted throughout the primeval history. And of course, by the third century BC, Jewish apocalypticism was really hitting its stride. So it should be no surprise to us to find that this passage, when interpreted correctly as an archetypal narrative, which concerns all of us, has this strong overtone of apocalyptic hope brought into its conclusion. The seed of the woman may yet come through the line of Seth and substantiate the innuendo that we've already witnessed concerning the progeny of Shem. Just to be clear, I'm not attempting to argue for a Hellenistic period date for the authorship of the primeval history. I'm just saying that when we read the Septuagint, we can see touches of contemporary influence that are not present in the earlier Hebrew text. That doesn't mean that we don't see the early signs of Jewish apocalyptic thought in the exilic period, because I think it should be abundantly clear from texts such as the book of Daniel that those developments were already underway prior to the return from exile and long before the Hellenistic period. So we've reached the conclusion of our study of Genesis 4. And when we return on the podcast next week, we'll give you a bit of a summary and wrap up of the season. And we'll let you know a little bit of what you can expect for season five, which will come after we take a month off. as a bit of a study break. If you're new to the podcast and still catching up on old episodes, this would be a great opportunity for you to get up to speed before season five begins. So stick around and catch us next week for the season finale, and it'll definitely be worthwhile to see the big picture of Genesis 4 laid out in all its splendor. Absolutely. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be awesome. I can't wait to have a, a big finish for season four next week before taking a month off. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves because we've still got some awesome content for you right now. It's time for answers to your giant questions. So let's have some Q&A. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. This question comes from the Divine Council Worldview Discussion Group on Facebook. Stein asked, what was the knowledge base behind Psalm 82, verse 7. Psalm 82 is important in Dr. Heiser's teaching about the supernatural worldview of the Bible. In verse 6 and 7, Asaph writes, I said you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. As far as I can see, there is no coverage for the statement of verse 7 about sons of the Most High destined to die like men in any OT scriptures written prior to the time of Asaph, who seems to be living at the same time as King David. However, when Enoch 
particularly 10, 4 to 12, and 19 verse 1, can be seen as expressing a similar content. But according to Michael Heiser in A Companion to the Book of Enoch, Volume 1, there is a scholarly consensus for the Book of Watchers, 1 Enoch, chapter 1 to 36, to be written sometime in the 3rd century BCE. Hence, I ponder, from where did Asaph get his insight or knowledge for writing Psalm 82? Hopefully you have thoughts that would shed light upon my question. Okay, well, that's a great question, and I certainly do have some thoughts about it. Thanks for the opportunity to get into some interesting material. So the core of this question is basically trying to get an understanding of how it is that biblical authors had some idea that the gods could be killed. What could have been going through the mind of the author of Psalm 82 that would give him the impression that a divine being could, in fact, be killed like a mortal man? What was his source material? Where did he get this idea? I guess I should say up front that the obvious answer might be correct, but without anything to substantiate it, it just remains unproven. And when I say the obvious answer, I mean that it should be obvious that gods in the pantheons of other nations quite frequently died or were killed. But the question is a bit harder to answer when you look at the biblical corpus. The Israelites have only one God who is the immortal and everlasting creator of all things. So without any precedent of the biblical God dying, how can a biblical author substantiate the idea that other gods can in fact die? The gods of other nations may die according to their sacred texts, but how does a biblical author interpret that information? I'm kind of glad that this question came up in a discussion group centred around the works of Dr. Michael Heiser because it means that I don't have to explain where he was coming from when he talked about Psalm 82. But I found something online that he had published over 20 years ago now concerning what he called the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, which in a nutshell is basically the overarching cultural paradigm that assumed that the biblical God presides over a council of lesser gods that he created for the purpose of carrying out his will. In this particular paper, Heiser was making the point that this concept was not isolated merely to ancient Israel, but was understood by the broader ancient Near East as demonstrated in their literature. The difference, obviously, is that Israel was allegiant to only one God and did not worship any others. We've been talking about that kind of worldview since the very beginning of this podcast, haven't we? Yeah, that's right. It's a part of the fabric of the biblical paradigm. So I'm going to quote here from a paper that Dr. Heiser wrote back before the time when he was Dr. Heiser. The paper is called Deuteronomy 32.8 and the Sons of God by Michael Heiser, PhD student at the time, published in LBTS Faculty Publications and Presentations, number 279 from 2001 at Liberty University. Heiser writes this, quote, the terms and themes in this psalm, that's Psalm 82, are present in Ugaritic literature. The terms Elyon, princes and gods are all present in the Ugaritic poem, The Gracious Gods. And it is quite telling that the notion in Psalm 82.7 of the Elohim or gods falling like one of the shining ones is found in a specific episode in which the fall of one of the B'nai HaSharim, sons of the shining ones, of the heavenly congregation was depicted. That's the end of the quote. So Dr. Heiser has established that there are literary connections between Eucharistic literature and this particular psalm. That's important because it gives us the possibility that even if there was nothing else in the biblical corpus that made sense of the idea that the gods could in fact be killed, at the least we could be appealing to the Eucharistic literature as the basis of the idea. By the way, in case you're interested in reading that poem for yourself, you can find it translated in English. Just look up the journal article entitled 
Notes on the Birth of the Gracious and Beautiful Gods by H.L. Ginsberg. This was published in the Journal of the Royal Asiatic Society of Great Britain and Ireland, number one. That's from January 1935, pages 45 to 72. You can find it online easily enough if you have JSTOR access. It should be noted that this is a very early translation, which has since been subject to many re-evaluations. One part of the tablet which is crucial to our examination for the purposes of this question is unfortunately damaged, and its interpretation has been contested. I won't quote directly from the translation here, but there are other connections to this Ugaritic poem to be made outside of the Psalter. I did a little bit of digging around and I found three quotes from the Torah that refer to one particular practice described in the Ugaritic poem, Gracious Gods. So I'm going to read those for you now. Exodus 23:19 and Exodus 34:26 in the ESV, these verses are identical. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Mentioned two scripture references there because uh, in both occasions the wording is identical. But here's a different one from Deuteronomy. Uh, this is Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 21. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it. Well, you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Okay, so you've probably identified the common element in those particular verses, and I bet you've always wondered what it's there for. I know I have. These verses occur in some interesting context when you expand your search a little bit and read the chapters in which these verses are found. We have two mentions in Exodus and one in Deuteronomy, so all three occur in the Torah. They speak about appointed feasts to Yahweh. They mention prohibitions with anything associated with death, including animals that eat things that are dead. They make reference to other gods, and they appeal to the uniqueness of Israel as being the people of Yahweh. The context here is to do with feasts to be held in honor of Yahweh in thanksgiving for the life-giving gifts that he brings his people. So it's kind of odd to have a particular prohibition thrown in amongst all the other things that are commandments of things that must be done. In amongst all the things that say, you must do this and you must do that. We have, you shall not do this. So what's going on there? If we look at the Ugaritic literature and this poem called The Gracious Gods, we find that the context is quite literally the opposite of what is shown in scripture. The story that unfolds in this poem is that the Lord and Master Moat, God of Death, has been out and has returned and it's apparent that somebody who is unnamed in the text has been killed. And after all the talk about widowhood and bereavement and that kind of thing, it quickly turns to a celebration and there are instructions given to the partygoers to make preparations for a feast celebrating the death of somebody. We don't know who that somebody is, but one of the things to be done in order to do the celebrations properly, according to this text, is to do what the Bible prohibits three times, which is to boil a young goat in milk. As we go on in the text, it becomes apparent that the feast is to be held in the assembly of the gods where eight places are set for the gods and yet only seven measures of food are to be prepared. Someone is missing from the banquet, and that seems to be the cause of the celebration. So what we have here is a context in which a god has died. And part of the ritual celebrating this occasion is the boiling of a young goat in milk. Perhaps now it's obvious why the practice was prohibited for Israelites who serve the god of the living. Because even if you were just going to eat like this outside of a ritual context, that's not the message that it would be sending anyone who was familiar with this practice. But it goes back even further than that. The poem continues with fertility rituals and all kinds of weird sexual metaphors. So there's a strong fertility aspect to this poem, which actually comprises the main theme of the piece. The part about the death of a god is really just the initial premise. 
So basically what happens is Moat goes out and kills one of the gods, comes back and he's like, hey, I just killed someone. Let's party. Someone boil me some goat. This signals the beginning of a fertility ritual. But then the chief god El is in trouble because he needs to impregnate his two wives and he can't get it up. So they tell him to eat some chicken and that makes it all better. Then they do the thing and his wives have children. His children are dawn and dusk. And this happens a second time. They have more children. This time they give birth to the five gracious gods. As it turns out, the practice of boiling a young goat in milk was in itself an Amorite fertility ritual. That was performed at the time of ingathering or first fruits in order to magically encourage fertility for the rest of the season. They do this thing and then fling the milk all over the crops to get some essence of baby all over everything. I, I like to imagine that they said essence of baby while I did it. Essence of baby, essence of baby, essence of baby for you, essence of baby, essence of baby over here. Can I have some more essence of baby? Uh, anyway, that means that this ritual performed in the context of the death of a god was about producing more gods, and that's essentially what this poem was about. That, as always, is very interesting, but... How does it help us answer our initial question? So I bring this up because what it tells us is that as far back as the giving of the law, Israelites were aware of the practice of the Amorites, which involved specifically certain rituals and feasts designed to celebrate harvest and mitigate the death of divine beings. And that means that there definitely was an awareness that divine beings could in fact be killed. So I would argue that the premise of God's being able to be killed as per Psalm 82, 7, was absolutely not a foreign concept to anyone exposed to Amorite culture. The reason for the prohibition of boiling a young goat in its mother's milk is because that prohibition is consistent with the principles laid out in the three contexts where it's written in Scripture, that Israel serves the living God, that Israel were a holy people set apart to him, that fertility and abundance come from God according to the covenant blessings rather than magical rituals, and that other gods were not to be acknowledged in the feasts of Israel. The message being sent by breaking that commandment had nothing to do with culinary techniques or causing distress to nanny goats or anything like that. Some of the explanations of this commandment that you find in commentary is absolutely laughable. Uh, when you broke that commandment, you were sending a message to your Amorite neighbours that said one of your gods was dead and that you were hoping for a new one to guarantee fertility for the next season. And as an Israelite, you only have one god, so you really don't want to be putting that message across. It should be fairly clear then that if this prohibition is given three times at the giving of the law, twice in Exodus and a third time in Deuteronomy, it must have been fairly well understood. You wouldn't have Israelites standing around going, what's that about then? Why can't I cook my goat that way? Like they knew what it meant because they'd seen it in the culture of the Amorites around them. They may have heard literature like that Ugaritic poem. Whatever the case, we need to be aware that Israel did not exist in a cultural vacuum and they knew what was going on in the nations around them. You might have uh, even had some Israelites getting involved in these pagan rituals because that's why the prophets are always getting so upset about idolatry true i mean you don't prohibit something if nobody's doing it right so there you go that goes all the way back to the exodus and you'd be hard pressed to find anything earlier than that as a precedent in literature that alludes to the concept being described in psalm 82 as for much later texts like first enoch i would agree that the enochic literature depends on biblical canon and can't be used as an original source that doesn't mean that the author of the enochic literature didn't have early independent source material that may have been based on a biblical foundation but remained outside of the canon. But we can't prove that because we don't have anything. Anyway, that's all beside the point because, as we've already agreed, the extant literature is way too late to make a case for it as a literary precursor to Psalm 82. Incidentally, while we're talking about dates, the tablet featuring this Ugaritic poem is from the 14th century BC. It's quite likely that the story of the gracious gods is probably much older than that, 
so old, in fact, that it doesn't even feature Baal, the typical Canaanite fertility god who eventually takes over the active role from El. But regardless of how old the story is, the extant source can be dated, and that's how we get 1400 BC. That's not far off the date of the Exodus in the grand scheme of things. I don't care if you want to be a couple of hundred years either side of that, it doesn't really matter. Speaking in broad cultural terms, that's contemporaneous with the giving of the law at Sinai. And since neither the law nor this Ugaritic poetry presumes to be informing an audience that's never heard of these things as though it was just invented, it seems logical to me to assume that these practices described in these texts have been around for some considerable time, so as to be well-known and commonplace by that time. Both texts just assume that people already knew what this was about and didn't need it explained to them. But that's about as far back as we're going to be able to trace these ideas. And I think it's enough to demonstrate that the concept of the possible mortality of the gods was well established in the culture of West Semitic people groups at a very early stage. So there you go, Stein. I hope that was a satisfactory answer to your question. And once again, I just want to say thanks for giving me the opportunity to respond to it. And don't forget, if you're listening at home and you've got a giant question that you would like answered on the show, you can always drop me a line using the contact form on the website, giantanswers.com, or just contact me in one of the Facebook groups that I inhabit. Indeed, there you go, people. Got a question? Go do it. Do it now. Do and it now. Once you've done that, get to the chopper. Anyway, before we go, I want to say a little bit about the situation with Nimrod because last week I said that I would. I've already covered this stuff in a significant amount of detail in my book, so you won't get the full treatment here. But uh, the reason that I favour Nimrod as the likely means by which the giants returned after the flood is specifically because of the language around Nimrod's rise to power. Aside from the first indication that we get, which is the fact that he's called a Yibor in the Hebrew three times, and that is the same terminology that's first used back in Genesis 6 to describe the Nephilim, and aside from the fact that the Septuagint gives us the term gigantes in the same fashion, that Hebrew word, halal, appears again. And by this time, it has appeared on three other occasions, all of them with seriously negative connotations. So taking a closer look at the word halal, what we find in its primary sense as beginning is the idea that this beginning sort of comes on like a wedge being driven into something. You've got this idea of a narrow opening being forced wider. And so there's this idea of piercing, if you think about the fangs of a serpent and how they're pointed sharply at the tip. And as they drive into the flesh of the victim, the holes are made wider before the venom is injected. So the idea is that something starts out small, gets bigger, and that describes the process of beginning in the case of something that gets bigger than it was or becomes more prevalent than it was, or whatever the case may be. This is closely related to another word which sounds quite similar, and that word means to become sick or weak. So going back to the idea of a snake bite, you can see how this kind of terminology would be ideal to describe it. It goes even further, in fact, because the kind of piercing wound that is described by implication in this terminology is specifically through some kind of hollow vessel, and that becomes evident when you see this terminology also being used for doing something like playing a flute. Where it starts to get really interesting is when you start seeing this kind of terminology in connection with Leviathan, the piercing serpent. You can see in these ideas there are striking correspondences to the idea of some kind of bloodletting ritual, and I believe that Nimrod was involved in some kind of practice, which was probably necromancy, involving the spilling of blood as a means of declaring his intent and his allegiance. That's where the other form of halal comes into play, connected to defilement in a ritual sense, which makes a person unclean from within. I talk extensively in my book about the idea that there is no neutral ground when it comes to your allegiance. You're either on the side of God and controlled by the Holy Spirit, or you're on the side of the evil one subject to passions and under the control of the other unifying spirit in the world, the Leviathan. And in case all that sounds really foreign to you, I would recommend that you pick up a copy of the book to get a better handle on this. 
Anyway, I think we're going to leave it there for today and we'll bring you more next week. That is all we have time for this week. And we're at the pointy end of this season now. It's hard to uh, imagine season four when I say it out loud. Seems like such a long time, but it also seems like yesterday. Join us next week for the final episode of season four, where we are going to wrap it all up before we take a break for a month. And then we will begin our study of Genesis 5 with a whole new bunch of giant questions to answer. We'll see you next week. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by PJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Hello child i'm sorry that your kids know my name but i can't remember any of theirs to uh quote the ancient wisdom i don't understand a word you're saying but then again you are very small uh i don't know if i ever watched that cartoon i need to fix my camera i don't know why it's how do i stop the blurry background i'm sure there's a way kind of look entirely blurry i think if you sit a bit too far back from it then you become part of the background uh, oh, here we go. I think this might uh, enable background blur. No, there we go. Uh, this is the Archer, so they're doing all of the characters. Um, oh, yeah. But yes, and it comes with the dice and stuff. But the new thing Hasbro are doing is um, plastic-free packaging. Oh, yeah. So it comes, like, you can't actually see what you're yeah. just going to trust. Yeah. yeah, okay. <laughs> just got to trust that what's uh, uh, that, is, that is little advertised. Dicey. <laughs> Ah, good one. Uh, hey, good job. Uh, nice one. And then I also got some uh, comics, which will be the last for a while. Sales. Does that say Sales to Astonish? It does. Sales to Astonish. So uh, Marvel had a title called Tales to Astonish, and this is yes. like Sales to Astonish. Speaking of uh, Dungeons and Dragons, uh, I was in Zing, and they had a, a, a figure of... A character from an old series of fantasy novels that I used to read as, like, a young teenager. I suppose I would have been, like, 14 or thereabouts reading these Forgotten Realms books. Ah, yes. Drizzed. That's the guy. Yes, white hair, elven kind of guy. Yeah. 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 Dark-looking skin and everything, yeah. Yes. Um, Yeah, Drizzed. Dorden. I have I have seen that. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, did you? Yeah. Yeah, looked awesome. Um, I resisted. I, I don't really want to have one in my house, but um, yes, it was cool. Uh, yes, you know, just remember that anyway. 
Oh, nostalgia. What a beautiful and costly thing it is. Yeah. You know, it, it didn't come with the little, um, should have a little, little wolf or something. Transforms into his, his little uh, companion animal. He had like a big black cat or something. Oh, okay. I can't remember the name. Yep. You know, it was one of those names with lots of vowels and H's and G's and you can't really say it. Um, yep. Star Wars. Um, yeah. Naming conventions. <laughs> Needs at least three extra apostrophes. Yeah, you know, like it was spelled by, you know, someone who was Irish or something. <laughs> yes. I haven't had much else going on. I mean, just sitting around the house waiting for my arm to heal. Let's do it. Okay. Do it now. Uh, okay. You suffer for my art. I do. <laughs> Well, it's not. It's just mild inconvenience. Oh, for goodness sake. Man. You suffer more than me, by the sounds of it. It's got to more people to keep it down to a dull roar. <laughs> Children silence. Parental <laughs> authority redeemed. They go off script. So in addition to the cosmic key, this version of Skeletor also comes with his, uh, I guess it's his half of power sword. Because it is very similar to He-Man, it just has a different design on here, sort of like the skull and bat look. But it's really nice looking, and honestly, it's not too different. Uh, so we're going to wrap it up. Oh, look, I'm just going to start the whole thing again. 